that um, Stephen Hawking had declared that after many years' consideration in physics, looking at the theories of the universe and the beginning of the universe, he decided that there was no place for God. And of course, this um, half-crazy enormous assignment got me also thinking about these questions of um, the relationship between theology and cosmology. So we thought it would be good to invite someone to explore these issues with us. We would better to invite Dr. William Carroll. Uh, he really is probably known to many of you already, but he's a Thomas Aquinas Fellow in Theology and Science at Blackfriars, and a member of the theology faculty um, here in Oxford. His book, Aquinas on Creation, formed part of the creation paper uh, in, in the uh, theology course. And he's been involved in, or connected with enormous numbers of different institutions. I couldn't really summarize them very quickly, but to give you an idea, his speaking engagements just over the last 12 months include being at the University of Vienna, the Vatican University of Rome, University of Notre Dame, uh, University in Bratislava, and with Columbia in New York. We've just signed him up now for a conference in Mexico. So um, he collects a lot of air miles and does a lot of good teaching. And we're very pleased to welcome him here this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. I'm uh, pleased to be here. I remember. Uh, Back in uh, 2003, uh, Arthur Peacock invited. 2002, 2003, Arthur Peacock invited me to one of these seminars. And I don't know how many years before that they were in existence, but I'm pleased to, to be back, and maybe I'll get it right this time. <clears throat> There's a handout in the back uh, with some text. If you don't have it, you should have one. And cane and strawberries. Well, we didn't have champagne and strawberries outside, but wine, champagne and strawberries at the headquarters of SAM near Geneva. And hyperbole in the media greeted the news at the end of March last year that the Large Hadron Collider began to function as expected. Two beams of protons, each with an energy equivalent of 3.5 trillion volts, smashed into one another in a tunnel 17 miles in circumference. Physicists have great hopes that this huge particle accelerator, built 300 feet underground on the Swiss-French border, will provide new and fascinating insights into what the universe was like shortly after the Big Bang. One goal is to discover elusive Higgs bosons particles reputedly responsible for the conversion of the energy of the Big Bang into the mass of the nascent universe. Uh, the first quotation on your handout, one without a number, is from a, a uh, professor of physics at the City College of New York, Michio Kaku, who appears often on television in North America. And he commented uh, on the uh, uh, events at the end of March. This is a huge step forward toward unraveling Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What happened in the beginning? This is a Genesis machine. It'll help to recreate the most glorious event in the history of the universe. And the media following Professor Kaku have dubbed the machine the accelerator, the Genesis machine. And it's been easy for them to reach the conclusion that experiments conducted using this machine will, as one author in Le Monde put it, 
make clear the mystery of the creation of the universe. Almost a decade earlier, a science reporter in the New York Times predicted that high-speed particle accelerators would help scientists to work out, quote, a mechanistic, a mechanistic gears and levers theory of the genesis moment itself, the hows if not the whys of creation out of nothing. Fascination with origins is commonplace in the natural sciences. The cover of the September 2009 issue of Scientific American, and if I were more high-tech, like Bob Randall Pinsent, I would press a button and we have the cover display, but we'll have to engage your own imagination here. The cover of the September 2009 issue of Scientific American announced the theme for a wide variety of essays on the subject, Understanding Origins. Topics included the origins of teeth, of cooking, of chocolate, of painting, of the internal combustion engine, and of intermittent windshield wipers. <laughs> but most prominently displayed on the cover were origins of life and of the universe. And Michael Turner, a cosmologist at the University of Chicago, was the author of the essay on the origins of the universe. And he optimistically claimed that, quote, cosmologists are closing in on the ultimate process, processes, the ultimate processes that created and shaped, and shaped the universe. Turner drew a compelling picture of the many advances in cosmology over the last 100 years, which have radically transformed our understanding of the universe and its development from a kind of formless, part, formless soup of elementary particles into the richly structured cosmos of today. Many questions remain, especially concerning dark energy, but as Turner notes, we still have time to find the answers, since if the universe continues to expand at its current rate of acceleration, we have about 30 billion years before all traces of the Big Bang will disappear. At that time, in the distant future, the light from a handful of nearby galaxies will be too red-shifted to detect. The temperature of the cosmic background radiation will be too low to measure. And 30 billion years from now, the universe will appear similar to the one that astronomers knew 100 years ago, before their instruments were powerful enough to reveal the universe we know today. Now, since we do seem to have enough time, 30 billion years, to reflect on theories of the cosmos described in contemporary science, we might take this opportunity to talk about creation and cosmology from a medieval perspective. <laughs> Perhaps it seems strange to juxtapose Thomas Aquinas and the cosmological theories of the 21st century, especially as found in one of its more famous theoreticians, Stephen Hawking. Even stranger, perhaps, to argue that what Thomas has to say about time and creation can speak directly to debates in our own day about the philosophical and theological implications of current cosmological speculation. And perhaps stranger still, still for me to argue that Thomas Aquinas is right. <laughs> Despite dangers of falling into anachronistic commentary 
or of failing to recognize profound differences in the ways in which terms such as science, creation, and time have come to be used in the centuries that separate us from Thomas Aquinas. I want to enter a discourse where even angels may fear to tread to examine the enduring relevance of the angelic doctor, especially in natural philosophy, metaphysics, and theology. Those of you who are more expert than I in developments in contemporary cosmology will, I hope, excuse some of the oversimplifications in these, the reflections of a medievalist, about creation and cosmology. I do think that when it comes to drawing philosophical and theological conclusions from contemporary cosmology, insights from the Middle Ages remain valuable. <clears throat> Astronomers often note that to look out at the heavens is to look back in time. Perhaps to look back in time to medieval discussions of creation and science would help us to look out more clearly and to avoid confusions uh, about both what we are seeing and what the implications of contemporary science are. <clears throat> now, developments in cosmology and particle physics have long encouraged flights of fancy about what the natural sciences can discover about the world. It seems easy to draw connections between developments in cosmology concerning the beginning of the universe and theological reflections about creation. Nevertheless, we ought to be alert to what it is that cosmology explains or seeks to explain and what creation means. What can cosmologists tell us about the mystery of the creation of the universe, uh, using the words from Le Monde? An answer to this question requires us to be clear about what the explanatory domains of the sciences, philosophy, and theology are. Stephen Hawking once famously remarked that his cosmological model, which denied the beginning to the universe, leaves nothing for a creator to do. Theories concerning what happened before the Big Bang as well as those which speak of an endless series of Big Bangs, are often attractive because they too deny a fundamental beginning to the universe and thus appear to make a creator irrelevant. In the Grand Design, published in September of last year, Hawking and his co-author Leonard Lovenow make the point just as the universe has no edge, so there is no boundary, no beginning to time. Therefore, to ask what happened before the beginning, or even at the beginning, would be meaningless. <coughs> this is now quotation number one on your handout from Stephen Hawking. In the early universe, when the universe was small enough to be governed by both general relativity and quantum theory, there were effectively four dimensions of space and none of time. That means that when we speak of the beginning of the universe, we are skirting the subtle issue that as we look backward toward the very early universe, time as we know it does not exist. We must accept that our usual ideas of space and time do not apply to the very early universe. 
That is beyond our experience, but not beyond our imagination. And ultimately they claim, and this is quotation number two on your handout, spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to set the universe going. Citing a version of contemporary string theory known as MD, they tell us that the creation of a great many universes out of nothing, quote, does not require the intervention of some supernatural being or God. Rather, these multiple universes, quote, arise naturally from physical law. Ultimate questions about the nature of existence, which have intrigued philosophers for millennia, are, so they claim, now the province of science and philosophy is dead. Theology, if mentioned at all, is simply dismissed as irrelevant. Now, the new book, The Grand Design, has fewer than 200 pages divided into chapters, each with a suggestive title, such as The Mystery of Being, in eight pages. What is reality? Nine pages. <laughs> Choosing our universe, the apparent miracle and culminating in the chapter, the grand design. The principal argument they offer is that once we recognize that our universe is but one of an almost infinite number of universes, then we do not need a special explanation, a grand designer, for the very precise initial conditions which account for life and our existence. As they say, and this is quotation number three on your handout, <clears throat> just as Darwin explained how apparently miraculous, how the apparently miraculous design of living forms could appear without intervention by a supreme being, the multiverse concept can explain the fine-tuning of physical law without need for a benevolent creator who made the universe for our benefit. A very important quotation which we might come back to later. However, the grand designer, rejected by Hawking, is not the creator, at least not the creator which traditional philosophy and theology affirms. We'll spend some time showing the difference. But others, have embraced traditional Big Bang cosmology, not the multiverse theories, not quantum cosmology, but others have embraced traditional Big Bang cosmology, which seems to affirm an absolute beginning to the universe as providing scientific support for, if not actual confirmation of, the Genesis account of creation. Even uh, Pope Pius XII, in November 1951, remarked that this cosmology, traditional Big Bang cosmology, offered support for what the opening of Genesis revealed. The argument is that an initial singularity outside the categories of space and time points to a supernatural cause of the beginning of the universe. Now this, the relationship between the temporal finitude of the universe and the conclusion that it is created can be found in the work of the Jesuit theologian and cosmologist Robert Spitzer in his recent book, which you can see or buy a in his recent book, 
no proofs of the existence of God, contributions of contemporary physics and philosophy, Spitzer claims that modern physics reinforces the medieval Muslim Kalam cosmological argument and shows us that the past time of the universe is infinite, showing that the past time of the universe is infinite, showing therefore that the universe is an absolute beginning is a proof, Spitzer claims, a proof of modern science for the existence of a creator. Several of you may be familiar with the work of William Wayne Craig, who offers arguments similar to the ones put forth by Spitzer. William Wayne Craig is a famous book on the Kalam cosmological argument. So you have any number of uh, cosmologists in the tradition of Stephen Hawking, Ivan uh, Malankin, Tegmar, Neil Torak at Cambridge and so forth, who have all kinds of elaborate cosmological models of the multiverse theory, of endless series of Big Bangs and so forth. And then you have others defending a more traditional Big Bang cosmology, which affirms uh, or seems to affirm an absolute beginning. And in a way, the debate is about whether or not cosmology discloses the beginning of the universe. Hawking denies the intelligibility of the beginning, and others argue for variations of an eternal universe, each with each variation with no beginning, because eternal. William Wayne Craig and Robert Spitzer claim that cosmology does indeed point to a fundamental beginning. The debate framed in such terms about a beginning let the exponent, leave the exponents either to reject or to embrace the idea of creation. So despite fundamental differences as to what cosmology, contemporary cosmology tells us, all these views tend to identify what it means for the universe to be created with the universe as having a temporal beginning. Perhaps some here this evening think it is obvious that a created universe is necessarily a universe with a beginning. Stephen Hawking surely thinks that. And since he denies the beginning, he denies creation. As we shall see, this emphasis on beginning leads to confusion about creation. News of the experiments to be conducted at CERN and the publication of books such as that of Hawking's and more recently, Brian Greene's The Hidden Reality, Parallel Universes and the Deep Laws of the Cosmos, which described, by the way, about nine different multiverse models. Huh? All these books provide renewed interest in questions concerning the relationship between cosmology and creation. But unfortunately, much of the discussion contains old errors concerning what cosmology, philosophy, and theology tell us about the world and its origin. This is true even when more careful commentators remind us that the Large Hadron Collider can offer at best only insights about the very early history of the universe shortly after the Big Bang. Now I want to locate this confusion about creation and cosmology, which I'll talk about in some detail in a moment. I want to locate that, this confusion as part of a much larger confusion 
between creation and the natural sciences, which has its source in a broad commitment to a kind of totalizing naturalism. This is the view that the universe and the processes within it need no explanation beyond the categories of the natural sciences. The claim is that contemporary science is fully sufficient, at least in principle, to account for all that needs to be accounted for in the universe. Whether we speak of explanations of the Big Bang itself, which is quantum tunneling from nothing, or of some version of a multiverse hypothesis, or of self-organizing principles in biological change, the conclusion which seems inescapable, at least inescapable to many, is that there is no need to appeal to a creator that is to any cause outside the natural order. Here is how one cosmologist, Lee Smolin, put it, and this is uh, quotation number four on your handout. <coughs> Smolin writes, we humans are the species that make things. So we find something that appears to be beautifully and intricately structured, our almost instinctive response is to ask, who made that? The most important lesson to be learned if we are to prepare ourselves to approach the universe scientifically, is that this is not the right question to ask. It is true that the universe is as beautiful as it is intrinsically structured, but it cannot have been made by anything that exists outside of it. For by definition, the universe is all there is, and there can be nothing outside of it. And by definition, neither can there have been anything before the universe that caused it. For if anything existed, it must have been part of the universe. So the first principle of cosmology must be, there is nothing outside the universe. The first principle means that we take the universe to be, by definition, a closed system. It means that the explanation for anything in the universe can involve only other things that exist in the universe. Thus, whatever kind of creation science can disclose, or be to disclose or be to deny through particle accelerators or elaborate mathematical models, it would be a scientific account of origins employing, as Smolin would say, principles drawn from within the universe. But such a conception of creation is not what philosophers and theologians mean when they speak of creation or at least it's not what they ought to mean when they speak of creation. <laughs> the distance between minute fractions of a second after the Big Bang and creation is, in a sense, infinite. We do not get closer to creation by getting closer to the Big Bang. Since, as we shall see, creation is not really an event at all. It is not within the explanatory domain of cosmology. It is a subject for metaphysics and theology. Similarly, the nothing in some cosmological models which speak of the Big Bang in terms of quantum tunneling from nothing is not the nothing referred to in the traditional sense of creation out of nothing. The nothing in cosmological reflections may very well be nothing like our present universe, but it is not the absolute nothing central to what it means to create. It is only that about which 
a particular theory says nothing. I'm often introduced, I have a colleague in Nova Scotia who actually introduced me as saying, my fundamental academic project is to go around the world making distinctions about different senses of nothing. <laughs> but, it's, but it is indeed an important distinction to keep in mind. <clears throat> Confusions concerning creation and cosmology, as I have suggested, run the gamut from denials of creation because the universe is conceived as having no beginning, to explanations of the beginning, exclusively scientific terms, which avoid any appeal to a creator, to opposing claims that the Big Bang itself offers a kind of scientific warrant for belief in God's creation of the universe. Contrary to all these claims, we need to recognize that creation is a metaphysical and theological affirmation that all that is, in whatever way or ways it is, depends upon God as cause. And on your handout in italics, since these are my words, this is number five, which is sort of a central thesis, and I thought that you could have that text from my text to take home with you to ponder nighttime reading. <laughs> So, the natural sciences have as their subject the world of changing things, from subatomic particles to acorns to galaxies. Whenever there is a change, there must be something that changes. Whether these changes are biological or cosmological, without beginning or end, or temporally finite, they remain processes. Creation, on the other hand, is the radical causing of the whole existence of whatever exists. Creation is not a change. To cause completely something to exist is not to produce a change in something, is not to work on or with some existing material. When God's creative act is said to be out of nothing, what is meant is that God does not use anything in creating all that is. It does not mean that there's a change from nothing to something. Cosmology and all the other natural sciences offer accounts of change. They do not address the metaphysical and theological questions of creation. They do not speak to why there is something rather than nothing. It is a mistake to use arguments in the natural sciences to deny creation. It is also a mistake to appeal to cosmology as a confirmation of creation. Reason, as well as faith, can lead to knowledge of the creator, but the path is in metaphysics, not in the natural sciences. Discussions of creation are different from arguments from order and design to a source of order and design. Similarly, discussions about fine-tuning fine -tuning of the initial conditions of the universe do not directly concern the topic of creation. Thus, whether or not multiverse theories do away with the need to explain such fine-tuning, as for example, Hawking claims, these theories do not offer a commentary on creation. 
Creation, as we have seen, provides an explanation of why things exist at all, not for changes in and among things. Now, these are my words, but thoughts are those of Thomas Aquinas applied to contemporary discourse. Now, to avoid further confusion, we need also to recognize different senses of how we use the term to create. We often speak of human creations, especially with respect to the production of works of art, music, literature. What it means for God to create is radically different from any kind of human making. When human beings make things, they work with already existing material to produce something new. The human act of creating is not the complete cause of what is produced. But God's creative act is the complete cause of what is produced. This sense of being the complete cause is captured in the expression, out of nothing. To be such a complete cause of all that is requires an infinite power. And no creature, no human being, possesses such infinite power. God wills things to be, and thus they are. And to say that God is the complete cause of all that is, and what creation means, is what creation means, is, does not negate the role of other causes which are part of the created natural order. Creatures, both animate and inanimate, are real causes of the wide array of changes that occur in the world. But God alone is the universal cause of being as such. God's causality is so different from the causality of creatures that there is no competition between the two. That is, we do not need to limit, as it were, God's causality to make room for the causality of creatures. God causes creatures to be causes. Creaturely causes, my role as a cause, subatomic roles of cause, all creaturely causes differ from one another in all sorts of ways. God's causality differs differently from all created causes as a way to try to capture the radical otherness of what it means for God to be caused. Now, already in the 13th century, the groundwork was set for the fundamental understanding of creation and its relationship to the natural sciences, which I have been sketching for you. Working within the context of Aristotelian science, and aided by the insights of Muslim and Jewish thinkers, as well as his Christian predecessors, Thomas Aquinas provided an analysis of creation and science which remains true. As Thomas wrote, this is quotation six on your handout, over and above the mode of becoming by which something comes to be through change or motion, there must be a mode of becoming or origin of things without any mutation or motion to the influx of being. Thomas drew heavily upon the analysis of Avicenna, who carefully distinguished between the ways in which metaphysicians and natural philosophers discuss agent or efficient cause. As Avicenna said, and this is quotation seven, another handout, 
The metaphysicians do not intend by the agent the principle of movement only, as do the natural philosophers, but also the principle of existence and that which bestows existence, such as the creator of the world. As I said, Avicenna distinguished between two kinds of agent cause, an agent which acts through motion and a divine agent which is a giver of being. Such an agent need only the power to create and nothing else. And on the basis of the ontological distinction between essence and existence, Avicenna argued that all beings other than God, in whom the distinction disappears, require a cause in order to exist. Since existence is not part of the essence of things, it needs to be explained by a cause extrinsic to the thing which exists. And ultimately, there must be an uncaused cause. Those of you who know something about Thomas Aquinas can recognize in broad outlines this argument, which is an argument Thomas initially gets from Avicenna. And although Thomas will come to, di to differentiate his position on essence exist and existence from that of Avicenna, he, Thomas, thought as well that the science of metaphysics is able to demonstrate that all things depend upon God, the cause of their existence. In a famous quotation from his uh, first magisterial treatment of creation, his writings on the sentences of Peter Lombard in the 1250s, he writes a sentence which is one of the more radical sentences in 13th century thought. He says, not only, he, Thomas says, not only does faith hold that there is creation, but reason also demonstrates it. Creation is not essentially some distant event. It is the ongoing, complete causing of the existence of all that is. At this very moment, were God not causing all that is to exist, there would be nothing at all. Creation concerns, first of all, the origin of the universe, not its temporal beginning. Indeed, it's important to recognize the distinction between origin and beginning. The former, origin, <coughs> affirms the complete, continuing dependence of all that is on God as cause. Whatever is created has its origin in God. But we ought not to think that to be created must mean that whatever is created has a temporal beginning. It may very well be that the universe had a temporal beginning, as the traditional interpretation of the opening of Genesis acknowledges. But there is no contradiction in the notion of an eternal, created universe. For were the universe to be without a beginning, it still would have an origin. It still would be created. This was precisely the position of Thomas Aquinas, who accepted as a matter of faith that the universe had a temporal beginning, but also defended the intelligibility of a universe created, <coughs> created and eternal. It is the failure to recognize that to be created does not necessarily entail a temporal beginning, which causes considerable confusion in contemporary debates about the implication of cosmology for arguments about whether or not the universe is created. <clears throat> As I've suggested already, many of these contemporary arguments 
presuppose that to be created necessarily means to have a temporal beginning. Thus, if we deny a temporal beginning, we deny creation. If we can show that for sure there is a temporal beginning, we have shown through cosmology that the universe is created. But both sides of that debate <coughs> make the fundamental mistake of thinking that to be created necessarily means to have a temporal beginning. Now, Thomas Aquinas also thought <coughs> that neither science nor philosophy could know whether the universe had a beginning. In principle, they cannot know, not because he didn't have enough information. He did, not, he did think that metaphysics could show us that the universe is created, but he would have warned against those today who use Big Bang cosmology, for example, to conclude that the universe has a beginning and therefore must be created. Thomas was always alert to reject the use of bad arguments in support of what is believed. The singularity in traditional Big Bang cosmology may represent the beginning of the universe we observe, but we cannot conclude that it is the absolute beginning, the kind of beginning which would indicate creation. As some contemporary cosmologists recognize, <clears throat> there could very well be something before the Big Bang. Indeed, Gabriele Veneziano, a theoretical physicist at CERN who was responsible for what, as one of the founders of string theory in the late 1960s, as he observes, quote, the pre-Big Bang universe has become the latest frontier of cosmology. <clears throat> now, a brief theological digression. When it came to how to read the opening of Genesis, Thomas Aquinas observed that what is essential is the fact of creation, not the manner or mode of formation of the world. That's the essential message of the opening of Genesis. Questions concerning order, design, and chance in nature refer to the manner or mode of formation of the world. Attempts in the natural sciences to explain these facets of nature do not challenge the fact of creation. And a world with a temporal beginning concerns the kind of world God created, not the fact that whatever world there is, it is created by God. It may very well be easier to accept that a world which has an absolute temporal beginning is a created world. And such a world may be especially appropriate for understanding sacred history, important as it is for believers. But an eternal world, one without a beginning in time, would be no less a created world than a world with an absolute beginning. Cosmological theories are easily used, or rather misused, to support or to deny creation. Each time, however, as I've suggested, to create has been joined inextricably to temporal finitude, such that to be caused necessarily means to begin to be. Thus, to deny a beginning is to deny creation. It was the genius of Thomas Aquinas to distinguish between creation understood philosophically in metaphysics with no reference to temporality whatsoever 
and to distinguish that sense of creation from creation understood theologically, which included the recognition that the universe does have a temporal beginning. Thomas's analysis of creation and its relationship to what the natural sciences and philosophy tell us is a good example of the importance of science and philosophy for theological reflection. Indeed, of the appropriate autonomy of these disciplines, science and philosophy, their appropriate autonomy in any theological view of the world. Now, there's a wider confusion at work here as well, wider than the confusion between creation and beginnings. And that is the failure to distinguish between creation and change, and hence to recognize that the natural sciences, including cosmology, have nothing whatsoever to tell us about the ultimate cause of existence of things. God's creative power is exercised throughout the entire course of cosmic history in whatever ways that history has unfolded. No explanation of cosmological or biological change, no matter how random or contingent such an explanation claims to be, no explanation of cosmological or biological challenges the metaphysical account of creation, that is, of the dependence of the existence of all things upon God as cause. When some thinkers deny creation on the basis of theories in the natural sciences, or use cosmology to confirm creation, or reject the conclusions of science in defense of creation, they misunderstand creation or the natural sciences or both. The experiments that have begun at SAM may very well offer new and spectacular insights into the nature of the very early universe, but they will tell us nothing about the creation of the universe, much less than about the opening of Genesis. Speculations about our universes being but one among a vast multiverse system may appeal to the imagination of mathematical cosmologists like Stephen Hawking, but such speculations do not call into question the fact that whatever is, in whatever way or ways it is, is caused to be by God. Thank you very much.